reason, he tagged me with the moniker loudspeaker. Not really sure why that came about either, but it has proven over the years to be apropos. So for whatever that's worth. But as, as I read scripture, so you know, stop the popping and I'll, I'll quit booby-trapping the thing. I'm reading, what does it say about God? What does it say about me? Or what is my response to what God is doing? Because really, when it comes down to it, that is the essence of the gospel. What did God do? What action did he take to bring me salvation, to bring me closer to himself, to grow me in Christ so I can take the next step in the gospel? And because of what I know... What do I do? What is my response? So as we were getting ready for the, uh, the leadership retreat, pastor said, why don't you take about 30 minutes Saturday morning and just encourage us from the scripture? I said, okay, fine. And I happened into this passage through my reading and thought, this, is, this would be really encouraging. So what I want to do with you is exactly what I did then. Now, I'm, I'm warning you there's no great outline here. I will give you a theme, but this, this would be what I would normally do, and this was how God spoke to me through this passage. What I'm going to do is walk through this text and just tell you what it says about God. Because that's what we need to see. Who is our God? What does he do? What does that mean in my life? So the challenge at the end of this is going to be for you to take the text and go back and say, because this is who our God is. This, this is who my God is. What do I do? How do I respond? What does the text say that I need to be doing? The theme, I would look throughout the text and say this. The theme is this. God invites me into his presence to give me peace when I'm afraid. Let's read through the psalm. It's not very long, and I'll try not to be boring. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. And to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up upon a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So what is David saying What does he see when he wrote this song that he sang to God in worship? What were the Israelites to think as they sang these same words in worship to God? 
What did they learn about their God? Well, in verse 1, it starts up right away. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? He says, God is his light. How is God light to the psalmist? Well, look at what the rest of the verse is saying. I think that will help us. He says, God is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? So apparently, at this stage in David's life, there were people or at least a person that was making life really difficult for David. And as you read through the rest of this, this, this psalm, it, it was close to violent. It may have gotten physical. Who knows? This may have been while David was free, fleeing from Saul. We don't know for sure. But the point is this. There were people in his life making his life miserable. Ever have anything like that happen to you? Anybody in your life think, boy, I really could do without that person today? Uh, I think many of us could identify with that. And David says, in that kind of circumstance, God is my light. When life is dark because of people, God is light. He helps me see what I really need to see. And the truth of that is, God helps me see correctly what's going on around me. When people aren't kind, whether they mean to be or not, God helps us have the right perspective. He provides that light. He may provide it through his word, maybe just through the comfort of the scripture. Uh, It may be through the spirit speaking to you, using the scripture perhaps. But God brings light. He says, God is my salvation. When you read through the Old Testament, the word salvation has a broader term meaning deliverance. It's not often really meaning salvation from sin. Now, it may, it may say something about delivering me from my sin, but in the broader sense, it's talking about deliverance. So he says, God is my deliverer. So while all these people are opposing me, if they're saying hurtful things, whatever's going on, and especially for us, if it's untrue, that's really the hard part to take, isn't it? When you're unjustly accused and you fear being around those people because they're going to throw that back in your face again and again. Or maybe you really did do something and mess up, and it just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. He said, God delivers us. He keeps us from having to be, not keeps us from being, but keeps us from having to be afraid to face people. Especially if we're supposed to be ministering to them. And remember, David's the king. Everybody is under him, but as the king in God's economy, he was serving his people. And he says, I look around, and I'm not enjoying this. These people are hard to get along with, or they're unjust, and it's difficult. Life is dark, but I've got to look and say, God delivers me from that kind of thing, especially from thinking that way. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord. Look and see who God is. He says, God is my defense. He's the defense of my life. God is the one I can go to when I'm afraid. Now, I promise I did not go through here and exegete all the Hebrew and all the fun stuff that I would normally do. But the word defense means refuge. It's a place to go for defense. God is my place to go for defense. When people are harmful or hurtful, when life is difficult, when it looks and feels dark, which it often does, God brings the light of his own presence in and reminds us that he can deliver us. And then he says, I'm the place. If you'll come to me, look at me for this. And by the way, if you'll notice in this verse, five times we have first person pronouns. Did you notice that? 
Look back down at verse 1. The Lord is my light. He is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? This is really personal. When you read this, don't think, oh, that's a nice verse to read from the Psalter. We will now move to the next part of the orientation or whatever we're doing in the service. David is reminding himself and telling us to remember, God is this to you, to me. He is your light in your particular situation. He is your deliverance. He is your defense. When life is hard, when the thing you wanted so much is gone, and especially if it's gone because of other people, God says, I'm the place you go. I'm the one who will give you that deliverance. I'm the place to go. Verse 4. David says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Interesting. Now, remember, uh, this is David, not Solomon. There is no temple. So metaphorically, he's saying there is a place of God's presence. So with that in mind, what does he say? David says, I asked something from the Lord. What did he ask? that I may dwell in his house all the days of my life, and that I may see the beauty of the Lord, and that I might meditate in that place. This is great. David is saying, God says, I can go to him and not be afraid of being turned away. I have access to God. I can be in his presence. I want to dwell in his house all the days of my life. He's not talking about moving into a place but in living, knowing that he is close to God. Beholding the beauty of the Lord. That's a great phrase. God, uh, the, Beauty means here, it means he's not scary or hard to look at. Uh, there's something about God that draws you to him. There's something delightful or pleasant about his presence. We don't often feel that or sense that because we rush into God's presence and we rush out. And David is here saying, I want to dwell in his presence all the days of my life. I want to see his beauty. And then he says, I want to meditate about him. I want to meditate. Um, God brings peace. It Unless you're an incredo mom and you've seen these people, they can do like four or five things at once and still stop and think. Most of the rest of us do not have that talent. Most of us really struggle to sit down and give five minutes to anything. But David says, my desire is to meditate in God's presence. To do that, some, somehow, some way, he has to find a place where it's quiet. And that may not always be going on, especially when in David's case, there are people around him going, meh, 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 all the time. And he wants deliverance from those people. And yet David says, I can be quiet and find peace in God's presence, in his tabernacle, in the temple, the place where he is. Now we have the joy of knowing that God is everywhere. And in the New Testament, we find out that the spirit resides within us. We can be in God's presence any time we want to be. And David marvels that I can actually get to God and he's not going to be turning me away. And because of that, I can be at peace. 
David says, God can calm your heart and help you put things in perspective so that you can stop and think about who he is, what he's doing, why he loves you. You want to wrap your brain around something for a while? Take about five minutes and try to think about one of those. And we think about who God is and realize there's an awful lot there. And we chew on that and we enjoy being in God's presence, thinking about him, what he's done for us. Then we get to verse 5. And knowing that he can be in God's presence, he says, because for in the day of trouble, he'll conceal conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. Now, David's already said, life's tough. I can see things are going on like this. He's saying, I'm in the day of trouble. And what is that when happens? He says, God conceals me in his tabernacle. In God's presence, I am secure. There's a secret place in his presence where God lets me rest. And that peace and that calm that comes from knowing God is found in that place. He lifts me up on a rock. Does that ring any bells to you? How about Matthew 7? Wise man built his house on the rock. Foolish man built his house on the sand. Which one of them was secure? The one who heard and obeyed the Lord, the one whose life was founded on the rock. And in the day of trouble, when we find ourselves looking to God, he says, you can come into my presence if you want to. And we do, and we find out that he really is that stability that we so desperately want. That when everything else may be going a little crazy around you, there's a place with God where that's not. It doesn't remove what's going on, but we find our security, our stability in God, in who he is and what he's done. As we remember those things, the day of trouble gets back into its right place and God gets his right place in our hearts. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that maybe that stability is just receiving endurance. Where Paul says, there's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. The day of trouble comes to everyone. But God will find a way to deliver. He will give us grace to endure. That's part of being on the rock. Sometimes the rock is just the best place to stand while everything else is going crazy. But it's still the rock. It's not going to go out from under you. God lifts us up and puts us there. Verse 6, he builds on that. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies because I'm up on the rock. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing praises to God. As we look and see God doing things, he takes my fear and he turns it into joy. And he makes me sing. Which is a remarkable thing for many of us. But he lets us have a joyful walk with him in spite of the fear. He says, I'm going to put you in a stable place and everything's really going to be okay. Because I want you to be joyful in me. He moves me from fear to joy. God puts us up there. It's the only response that we can have. And I know I'm cheating by saying what we should do. But he moves me from fear to joy. Verse 7, it's still building. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Be gracious to me and answer me. God not only says, hey, get into my presence. Go ahead. You're welcome to do that if you want to. Well, I've told people you can talk to me. I may not be paying attention. We get distracted by things. God says, no, 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 no. I'm not distracted. 
It says, hear, O Lord, when I cry. David is saying, when I cry to God, he hears me because he is gracious and he answers. Now think about this for a second. About whom are we speaking? It's God. That's good. Let's remember what kind of God he is. This is the omni God. He is omnipotent. The God that hears your prayer that says, I will be gracious and listen, is the God who controls everything. Everything. The weather. You ever watch on the weather channel and you see the big storm and it looks like it's covering three or four hundred miles? And yet the Bible tells us the storms are in the palm of his hand. He moves those things. He controls every person around you, even the ones who are causing the day of trouble. Nothing is too hard for him. He's the omniscient God. He knows everything. He knows what you need, even when you can't really express that. And Paul says he makes sure because his spirit intercedes for us when we can't know what we're needing. He's the omnipresent God. He's everywhere. There's nowhere you can be where you're not going to be in God's presence. So anytime you have need of something and you seek the presence of the Lord in that secret place, the tabernacle, the place where he says come, he's always there. This is that God. It gets better in verse 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, will I seek. Not only does he hear me, he says, yes, you can call. Not only does he hear and answer in grace, it says he commands us to call. In verse 7, I can. Verse 4. Verse 8, when I do, he answers. Verse 8, he says, God commands us to seek his presence. He says, when you said, seek my face. God said, seek my face. That's an imperative. We're supposed to do it. It's not just, you know, God says, I feel sorry for you in the day of trouble. Okay, if you pray, I'll listen. He's saying, in the day of trouble, seek my face. You should do that. It's a good thing. By the way, now it's an obedience issue. You're supposed to, in the day of trouble, seek God's face. This is like verse 7 on steroids. Not just, okay, I'll listen. It's like, do this so I can be gracious, so I can answer. Yes, God can do all those things without you uttering a syllable. But he wants you to come into his presence. He wants you to see that you have a need, and he wants you to watch as he does incredible things to take care of you, whether it's in the day of trouble or he removes the trouble from you. In either case, he wants you to approach him and be near to him. This is the omni-God here, folks, the God of everything. And he says, I want you to be close to me. Many of you may be like me and come from what I will gently say is a dysfunctional family. Not my current family. (laughs) My current family, cool. The the family in which I was raised. Let me me clarify that. Cindy's okay, really. Kids, eh, but it's okay. We might struggle with the fact that someone says, I love you enough that I'll do anything I can to help you, and that they actually will do it. You may have been let down by friends. Family may have let you down. Not God. Not God. But our natural reaction comes up when we get in there, doesn't it? Look at verse 9. David says, okay, Lord, I understand, but don't hide your face from me. 
Don't turn away from me in anger. You've been my help. Don't abandon me or forsake me. Oh, God of my deliverance. Isn't that how we feel very often when we think about God? Oh, boy, I'm going to do something to mess this up. Yeah, I know God said, but I know what I am. And, you know, maybe I need to do over here to earn this so I can get back. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Don't do that. It may be natural. But he says, he's the God who delivered. What did he deliver us from? Why would he call him the God of salvation? Well, we know he delivered us, obviously, from sin. The power of sin over us. Now, the penalty first, when Christ died. The power of sin over us now, the Holy Spirit can sanctify us and keep us from doing that. And ultimately, from the very presence of sin one day. Yes, there will be a day when sin will have no effect on you or me, and that will be incredible. But right now, we know that he's delivering us. He delivers us in trials. We've already talked about that, 1 Corinthians 10. He delivers us from all the bad things that you probably don't know ever happened. I always use this illustration because it just gets me every time I think about it. Several years, many years ago, we went to Disneyland. Disneyland was cool. The girls were small. And on our way back this May, I thought, we need to stop at one of these citrus stands and get some oranges. Okay, if you go to Florida in May, the orange season is done. The the fruit that is there is really pitiful. But we stopped anyway because I was going to get Florida oranges. Um, and we, we were there maybe six, seven, eight, ten minutes, figured it out, got back on the highway, and you're tootling along. You know what it's like on the highway. You see the same cars. You're going back and forth all the time. And we went down the road a little ways, and all of a sudden on the side of the road on Interstate 4, which is the death trap of Florida, uh, there were about, oh, six or seven cars. And it looked like a cartoon car wreck. You know what I'm talking about? Where they're all accordion together. There's just this big one long piece of automobile that was really about six. Those were the cars with whom we had been riding back and forth before we stopped to get our terrible oranges. It is very possible that because God made me want those oranges, whether they were any good or not, that we were delivered from that. How many things like that may have happened in your life that you have no clue, but because he is the omnipotent God, he moved all those things to make sure you were cared for. He delivers us from the fear of rejection in this verse. Often we feel that way. We know who we are. And we wonder why God loves us. But he's delivered us even from that fear of rejection. He's pleading here against God's righteous anger, against his own sin, against his own life. And God's saying, I'm not going to reject you. He loves you so much. He's delivered you from all that and so much more. Why does he feel this way? Look at verse 10. I, I don't know if this is metaphorical or not. I don't know if it's a figure of speech or if this happened in David's life, but he says, my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will lift me up. Is there a closer relationship? Maybe husband and wife? In either case, how would you feel? Maybe how have you felt when this close of a relationship is violated? Someone forsakes you, gives up on you turns you away, casts you out. But David says, no, 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 no. The Lord will take me up. He won't reject me. God loves you enough to deliver you. And if he's done that, he's certainly not going to turn his back on you. In my deepest pain, God is always there for me. There's no way 
God is going to cast you aside after all he's done for you. When the world collapses, God shows you how to handle it. Look at verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in the level path because of my foes. Life gets hard. The day of trouble comes. And we often struggle to understand what to do or how best to respond. And David is sensing that. Teach me your way, O Lord. God shows you how to live, especially in trouble. And we need that guidance because the visceral reactions that most of us have aren't really the righteous ones we need to have. The first thought normally is to lash out or lash back or to run away in fear. And he says, wait, Lord, teach me how to do this. Show me what's the best way to go. Lead me on the, the level path, the easiest way to go. He's asking, he says, Lord, you know, lead me in a level path. I don't need right now, I, I don't see very much. Life feels kind of dark. Remember, verse 1, he needed light. So he says, I, I need a straight level path here. Just show me what to do. And I know most of us ask for the same thing. Lord, just tell me the next thing to do. So we go into God's presence and we seek that. And David is saying, God will give that guidance. He will do that for us. We need that. We need that. Our own thoughts are not always the right way to go. Proverbs 13 and 15, good understanding produces favor. But the way of the treacherous, the transgressor, is hard. Left to our own devices, we're going the wrong way. We need good understanding from God. David says he'll teach you that. Verse 12, do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries. False witnesses have risen against me and such as even breathe out violence. Do you really think God can can change people around you just for your sake? Or did that just kind of happen? David is saying here, don't let these people get what they want. And he's expecting God to change his situation. And, and we would look at that and think, that's kind of presumptuous. You know, Lord, help me. It'd be nice if this happened, but I'm not going to fight about it. I'm, I'm willing to. No, he's saying, be specific. God, deliver me from these people. False witnesses. People are trying to be violent. It may get bad. And he expects God to take care of it by changing those people. Not David. David's not saying anything. He's really expecting God to change his circumstances, even if it means changing other people. Verse 13 is incredible. (laughs) I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David says, I would have gone out and run out of hope a long time ago. I would have run screaming if I hadn't known that God was good. So tell me. How did David know God was good? Well, he tells you right in the verse, look back down there, pay attention to it. Unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, this is not like the old TV program, The Land of the Lost, where they went over the waterfall and ended up where all the dinosaurs were. What is the land of the living? The land of the living is now, while we're living David says, I would have despaired. I would have run out of hope unless I knew that I could count on God to be good to me right now, not later. Not everything's going to be great when you get to heaven right now. 
God is good right now. And I can look around and see it. I would have gone out of hope. I would have despaired. I would have given up if I didn't think God was good right now. How did he know God was good right now? I want to walk around. I can't do that. How did he know God was good right now? Because God was doing good things right then. Right then. God's goodness is evident in this life. Right now. That is what keeps us from despair. Because God is doing good things for you right now. It is part of who he is. It is part of his plan to help us make it to the end is that he's good right now. If God isn't good now, how can you count on him being good later? You got no track record. You're really going to trust him that things are going to be okay on the other side? This, this isn't like, you know, Allah and the 70 virgins. You know, you hope, it, you know, if you go blow yourself up, you're going to get something in the end. Is that really what you want to pin your hope on? But because God is good right now, we know he's going to be good or better on the other side. Our hope is not in maybe. Our hope is based on what we see right now. And then we're able to have faith to move ahead that God is still going to be doing those great things. So we need to look, pull over and park a second, we need to be looking for evidence of God's goodness right now. We need to see that he's doing good things. This is what we mean when someone says, count your blessings. Keep your eyes on Christ. Let me quantify that. Look around and look and say, God did that, that is good. God did that for me. Because he is good. He's good right now. And because he's good right now, we can see it. Even in the day of trouble. Even in the day of trouble. Verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. The goodness of God that we see all around us, all around us, gives us strength and courage to go through the day of trouble today and then tomorrow and the day after that. Wait for the Lord. It literally means eagerly expect something from God. When we go into his presence and pour out our hearts and say, I hurt, I'm tired of these people hurting me, things are not going well, and he begins to calm our spirit and give us grace to go through that day of trouble. Then he says, now watch as I give you strength. Look around for the good things that remind you that I'm going to deliver you through all of this. Expect God to do good things. Why are we so surprised when something really cool happens spiritually? Or God answers some prayer like, wow, that was really neat. It is, and we should respond that way. But we're almost kind of like, wow, I didn't really expect that to happen, but it did. We should be expecting God. Now, I don't mean weirdly expecting, like demanding God do things. There, there are teachings out there, and that's, you know, we don't, we don't control God. You don't say things, and those words make God do things. But God says, I want to take care of you. I'm going to deliver you. I want you in my presence, and if I want you there, I'm going to take care of you. So why is it when we see that finally happen that we're shocked? That's why in the day of trouble, we need to be in God's presence. 
when I fear and I'm in doubt, I need to look back at God. I look around at what he's done. I look up to him and say, I need you. And he says, expect me to take care of you. Again, it doesn't mean the trouble will always go away. But as we see God for who he is and we respond to him right, his grace, his mercy is extended. He answers our prayer in the best way we need it. He gives us strength and encouragement. It may be for the long haul. It may be he fixes it tomorrow. We should expect him to fix it tomorrow. But not be disappointed if he doesn't because he gave us grace to get through this day. And we can have grace the next day. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. God invites me into his presence, and in his presence, I move from fear to peace because God is incredible. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so in awe of you and your greatness. We look at just this one very short psalm and realize that you do more for us than we could ever imagine. And our service for you really use the word is paltry most of the time. We seek, we want, we ask. We don't ask in faith and then wonder why we don't receive things. We forget that you are a God who really can do whatever needs to happen. So Lord, I pray you'd encourage our hearts. The day of trouble comes to us all. For some in this room right now, it may be the day of trouble. Life is hard. Disappointment doesn't just go away. And we wrestle with how to respond. Teach us the right way. Show us the level path while we're learning so that in the next day of trouble, we're ready to respond correctly. Help us to wait expectantly on you to allow you to change us and teach us and mold us so that when we're in fear, we can look to you and move to peace. We're so thankful that your great love makes all of this possible, that you delivered us for this very reason. May we learn to trust you because you are so trustworthy. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so here's the plan. Come ahead. It's okay. Come ahead. The plan is you take this psalm this week and go back and find out what are you supposed to, what is your response to that? If this is our God and who he is, how do I respond? I cheated and gave you a couple already. But you go back, find the pronouns, find the things where it shows David's response to who God is. And I would encourage you, pray up through those things this week. May that, you know, God, show me how to do this. Teach me how to pray so that I'm in your presence. I'm not talking about weird, just I'm taking the time to let God work in my heart.